Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, today we're going to be wrapping up our series, Sink or Stand. And this series has anchored us in Matthew chapters 14 and 15, as we have seen Jesus inspire faith in his disciples by basically placing them in situations where they would either stand in faith or they would sink in unbelief where he wanted to do in and through them things that would have been impossible otherwise, things like feeding the 5,000 or walking on water. Or last week we saw even a Canaanite woman who had no ability to demand anything from Christ. He heals her as she exhibits faith in him. And so we've seen a number of these instances over the last few weeks, and today we're going to wrap up that series by looking at the feeding of the 4,000 from Mark chapter 15. But before we get to that, I want to just take all of us back to September of 2000. Now, I want you to think about what were you doing in September of 2000? And I know there are some of you that are saying, I was doing nothing. I wasn't born yet. I get it, right? I feel old. But think back. What were you doing if you were alive in September of 2000? If you were alive in this town in September of 2000, then you were probably watching the Oklahoma football team. Because it was in that era that we got interested in OU football again in this town, right? Because it was in September of 2000 that OU rattled off four straight wins against powerhouses like UTEP and Arkansas State, Rice, and Kansas. If you're a Kansas grad, Steve Crandall, where are you, man? I'm sorry. I just offended your school. But here's the thing. Um, Back in that era... Uh, we began to get interested in OU football. They rattled off four straight wins, but here is what was going through many of our minds. What was going through many of our minds was this. We believe that OU has the ability to win on that field and against those teams, but how will that translate when we leave the friendly confines of Owen Field and head off to play tougher competition? Those doubts probably existed in many of our minds. But then October happened. Red October, as they call it. Where Oklahoma played top 10 teams of Texas and Kansas State and Nebraska and defeated them on neutral fields and at away games in one time here in town. And it was in that era that we began to believe our doubts were removed as we saw our team win against the best competition in hostile territory. Friends, I, I tell you that story today because I wanted to tell an OU football story. Let's be honest. No. <laughs> I tell you that story today because I think that in that experience of September 2000, we can relate a little bit to the disciples. Because in September 2000, we wondered if our team could perform at the same level against the toughest competition on foreign turf. And I think that in the Gospels, as Jesus is performing his miracles, when we get to Matthew chapter 15, I think the disciples were used to seeing Jesus on the home field of Galilee perform miracles among the home crowd of the Jewish people. But there had to be some concern, some doubt, some wonder if he could or would perform those same works on foreign soil against tough competition, the Gentiles. 
Now, I think that that has a parallel for you and I. Because I think that that you and I often live our lives thinking, Jesus, I know, I know, I know you can work to bring someone to faith in Christ because you did that work in my life. But I'm not certain, Jesus, that you can do that work in the life of this person who seems so far from you or so hostile to your truth. I know you can work on the home turf. I'm not sure that you could work over there. Or maybe you have experienced something where you think, Jesus, I know that you can provide peace in people's lives. I know that you can provide restoration in people's lives. And I've seen that over here, but I'm not certain you can do it on this turf in this situation or this circumstance that I'm dealing with. I think you can do it there. I'm not sure you can do it over there. Well, friends, when we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, we see Jesus doing an amazing miracle really amazing miracles on away games among hostile people. And it ought to inspire us that we can trust Jesus to work no matter where we are. So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, all the way down through chapter 16 and verse 12. So if you've got a Bible, open up. We're going to look at those verses together. I'll read them for us, and then we'll back up and find out a little bit more about what they mean. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 32, it says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And so the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and the children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came to him and they tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, it's stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and he departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, friends, in these verses today, we're going to see a couple of things that will inspire us to trust Christ even more. 
The first thing that I think we need to see is this. Jesus can work there also. Jesus can work there also. Now, in order for us to really understand this, we really need to think about the context and the location of the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. So for that, let's go back and look at our, our map that we've been looking at in this series. And if you remember, that red star at the top is the region of Tyre and Sidon. And it was, Jesus had just been in that region of Tyre and Sidon where he had he healed the Canaanite woman's daughter. He had cast the demon out of her. So you remember that's where he was. And when we get to the verses that we just read, Jesus is actually has left the region of Tyre and Sidon, has come beside the Sea of Galilee. And in the parallel account of Mark chapter 7, verse 31, we find out that Jesus ends up in that circled area there, the region of the Decapolis. Now, why is that significant? Well, the region of the Decapolis was a region that, that bordered Israel and overlapped it to some degree. That was made up of 10 city-states. They were occupied not by Jewish people, but by Gentiles. The region of the Decapolis was a region that was occupied by non-Jewish, non-Israelite people. And these were folks who had settled in that area around the time of Alexander the Great, some years before Jesus came onto the scene. This was a Gentile area. You know, when I was in Israel a few years ago, we went to the town of Beit She'an, which was one of the cities of the Decapolis. And it was a beautiful city, a prominent city. There was a beautiful main street, many shops, a, a place of economic growth. There was a bathhouse and, and places to, to watch entertainment, like at a, at a theater. But in all of Beit She'an, you know what there wasn't? There wasn't a synagogue. Why was there no synagogue in Beit Shean? Because there were no Jews in Beit Shean. The Decapolis was a place of, of Gentile people. It was not a place of worship of God. But Jesus leaves the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon and doesn't go back to Galilee right away. He walks around the lake. He walks down to the Decapolis and he sets up shop. He goes to a mountainside outside of that area. And in chapter 15, verses 29 through 31, we see that people begin to go out and, and find him there. These Gentile people, these non-Jewish people. And they're bringing to him, they're, they're sick, and he begins to heal them. Not, not small illnesses, friends, big illnesses. People who have never spoken, he touches their tongue and they talk. People who've never heard, he touches their ears and they hear. Jesus is working some remarkable miracles in this region of the Decapolis. And as he's working these miracles, the people are leaving and going back to their villages and getting their friends and saying, come on, look, this, this man is out there. Me, who's never heard, I can hear now. Come and meet the man who healed me. You got to meet my new friend. And so over three days' time, the crowd grows and grows and grows until there's about 4,000 men gathered around Jesus, plus women and children, maybe eight to 16,000 people total gathered on the hillside in the region of the Decapolis. 16,000 Gentiles gathered around Jesus. Now, this is a significant event because when you think about what had just taken place back in Tyre and Sidon, Jesus had made a, a statement where he said he came for the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was indicating a priority that his ministry was primarily among the Jew first before it would ever go to the Gentiles. We know that in Matthew 28, 
When Jesus gives the great commission, he will say that the gospel is to go to all nations, to the ends of the earth, Jew and Gentile. But that door had not yet been opened. And so what we see as Jesus moves from Tyre and Sidon down to the Decapolis is we really see a preview of a coming event. We see Jesus showing what will happen in the days ahead as the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And so we get to verse 32. And as the, the group is, is, is gathered there, they're, they're, verse 31, they're glorifying the God of Israel. These Gentile people are beginning to praise the God that Jesus is representing. And we get to, to verse 32, and Jesus looks out around the crowd, and he goes, you know what? They've been here with me for three days now, and they didn't plan on this. They didn't, they didn't pack to go to the festival. They just showed up, and they're ill-equipped, and they don't have enough food to eat. And they're beginning to get really, really hungry. And it says Jesus had compassion on them. And so when Jesus has compassion on this crowd of some 16,000 people, he turns to his disciples, and he asks them about getting them some food. Now, friends, where have we seen this scene unfold before? If you've been with us the last month, you know that a few weeks ago we looked at this almost exact same setup as Jesus arrived in Bethsaida and a Jewish crowd had gathered around him. And Jesus looked out at that crowd of, of some fifteen to 20,000 people and had compassion on them and turned to his disciples and said, hey, we ought to give them something to eat. And they said, we don't have anything. And Jesus took some borrowed fish and some borrowed bread, and he blessed it, and they had enough to feed everyone. So here we are, just about a month later, and a very similar situation is unfolding. And Jesus looks out, and he has compassion, and he asks the disciples for food. And you know what? The disciples are clearly going to answer and say, we know the answer to this one, right? They're going to say, it's you. You're going to do it, Jesus. That's what we can imagine that they would say, right? But what do they say? Do they point to him? No, they don't. They say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, this is the moment where it's easy for us to laugh at, poke fun of, and tear down the disciples, right? For their lack of faith, their lack of understanding. But I think we need to pause for just a moment and really ask the question, why did they respond in this way? What, what was going on that, that, that had them respond in this particular way? Well, there's a number of possibilities for what was happening here. The first possibility was they just forgot about the feeding of the 5,000. It just slipped their mind. Um, now, I think this is highly unlikely that they just forgot about it. First of all, it was maybe just about a month later. It's very recent history. Second of all, all four gospel writers, as we saw a month ago, all four gospel writers recorded this event. It was not something that they forgot about. It was something they talked about a lot. And it was a, a significant thing that they were involved in. So I don't think that it's rational to think that they just forgot about it. 
A second possibility, if they didn't just forget about it, maybe they, they remembered that event, but really what they were doing here is responding accurately. They were responding in faith. They were saying something to this effect. Hey, Jesus, we don't have it in us, but you do. In other words, the, what's not written in the text was maybe a hand gesture or a, a look of their eye or a slight smile in some way where they were understanding what Jesus was getting ready to do. But again, I don't think that's a very likely scenario either because Jesus later on in these verses is going to rebuke them for some lack of understanding about this event. I think the most likely scenario in this case, friends, was that the disciples just did not have a category for Jesus doing this kind of a miracle on such a large scale among a Gentile audience. If they'd been back in Bethsaida, I'm guessing the disciples would have said, Jesus, do your thing. Go for it. This is going to be fun. It was awesome last time. I can't wait to see the encore performance. But instead of being in Bethsaida, instead of being in Israel, they're in Gentile territory. And the disciples were probably thinking, wait a minute, you just said that you came to the Jews first. You just didn't want to do a miracle for one woman and her, and her oppressed daughter. I mean, this is thousands of people. This is a massive miracle. Surely you only do that kind of a miracle for certain people. There would have been some piece of unbelief because of that. Well, Jesus doesn't allow that line of questioning to slow him down. Instead, he just says, give me what you got. And so the disciples gather up seven loaves and a few fish, and they give them to Jesus. And Jesus takes those elements, and, and he blesses them, and then he gives them to, to the disciples. And just as they did with the 5,000, they began to take those elements and give them to the people. And again, seven loaves and a few fish was not enough to feed the twelve And yet, in the hands of Jesus, it becomes enough to feed the 16,000. This is a remarkable miracle that the disciples, again, were uniquely positioned to see as Jesus worked through them to feed the masses. And they fed them indeed. As a matter of fact, they fed them so much that everybody ate until their stomachs were full. And after their stomachs were full, the disciples were able to gather up some leftovers now, it says in the, in the passage here, how many basketfuls did they gather of leftovers? Seven baskets, right? Now, how many baskets did they have left over when they were up in Bethsaida in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? Do you remember? Twelve, right? There were, there were 12 up there. There were seven here. And so it's, it's, it's easy for us to look at that as we read our English Bible and to say, well, they had more leftovers in Bethsaida than they did in the Decapolis. But we would actually be wrong if we were to say that. Because here's why. In the original language, there's a different word that is used for basket in each of those locations. The baskets that they had left over up in Bethsaida were basically, it's a a word that was used for a Jewish kosher lunchbox. They all had their own styrofoam take-home container at the end of the thing, right? They all had dinner to eat on the boat later that night. That's what happened up in Bethsaida. 
But the baskets that were used to collect the leftovers down in the Decapolis, these were Gentile baskets that were made out of reeds that were strung together. And these baskets were actually quite large, built to carry lots of different things. The same word for basket that is used of these baskets was a word that was used for a basket that was large enough to put the apostle Paul inside it and lower him over the wall of the city of Damascus in the book of Acts. These are big baskets, not lunch boxes. What happens in the Decapolis is that Jesus provides an abundance to feed these people. Now, what was Jesus doing in the midst of that miracle? What, what, was, he, what was he doing? Well, I think that one of the things that is important for us to see is that Jesus was doing this miracle through them because he wanted the disciples to learn and remember something important. And what he wanted them to remember was that he was going to use them to minister not just to their fellow countrymen, not just to those who were like them, but he was going to use them in a ministry to those who were very different from them in the very improbable locations. And he was going to do so with an abundance of provision to be able to do an amazing work. Jesus was letting them know that he could work there too. And a couple of things that are are critical for this. First of all, he can work there among the Decapolis because he's God, right? He's not just an idol that, that had some kind of territory. He's the God who created all things. He sits over and above the universe. And so he is the God of the Decapolis just as much as he is the God of Israel. He's sovereign over all of that area. But the second thing we see is that he was willing not only is he God, but he was willing. And, and this, this message to go to the ends of the earth was going to, to hit center stage with the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. But we get a preview of coming events right here in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus was going to take the gospel there too because he was God and because he's willing. Now, what are some applications we might draw from this. Well, one thing, even before we get to what, what I have, I just want to just impressed by this in between services. I just want to share this with you. You know, one of the things that this passage tells us, if you're here today, as you read this, if you think that this message of Jesus is not for me, it can feed others, but it can't feed me. Guess what? It can feed you too. Matter of fact, Jesus might have sovereignly guided you to this place through the invitation of a friend or just driving by because this is a message you need to hear today. The God who fills others can fill you as well with forgiveness, with hope, and with life. But what are a few other applications that we see as it relates to the feeding of the, of the 4,000? Well, one of the, the applications that we see in this section is a reminder that Jesus wants to use us in his work. He wants to use us to to share love and life and hope in Christ with others. And you know, when we think about God using us in that task, oftentimes we want to give the reasons why we don't qualify. You know, all of us have time, talent, and treasure. All of us have those three things. And when I say that, you might think, well, I don't have very much. I mean, when I say you have time, somebody in this room just laughed. I have time. Let me show you my calendar. I don't have 
time. Yeah, you don't have enough time to to reach the universe, to reach the world, but guess what? The time that you have, even though it's small in the hands of Jesus, it can be enough for him to use you in a way that is significant and purposeful and meaningful. You have talent. You're like, well, yeah, but I don't have as much talent as this person or that person or this situation or that situation. Guess what? Your talent isn't enough. Even if you're incredibly talented, amazing talent in this room, but you're not talented enough for the things that God has called you to. And yet in the hands of Jesus, that talent can be blessed to work his power and his miracles and his, his hope offered to others. You have treasure. You know, some of you are, are chuckling at that. Yeah, I've got treasure. Yeah, we've got a chest in the backyard with our rubies and our diamonds, right? We don't feel like we have very much. Sometimes we don't even want to give financially because we feel like it's such an insignificant gift. I only have $5 to give. I only have 10 or 20 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever is a small amount to you. You feel like, I don't even know that I should give you because it seems so small, so insignificant. But the reality is that those things in the hand of Christ can be blessed and used for his great work. Jesus, by his grace, wants to use us in his work. He invites us to be a part of it. Second thing that I I think is significant for us to see is that he will use us in very unlikely situations. You know, I mentioned earlier that we think about Jesus working in our home turf situations, the things that seem easy, but when we have to play an away game in an area that feels particularly challenging, we might wonder if God could work over there too. The story of the feeding of the 4,000 is a reminder that Jesus is able to work even in those difficult situations people that we've written off because we feel like they're too far gone, the gospel can reach them. And God wants to use us to take it to them. Not only that, but Jesus can work anywhere. If the story of the feeding of the 4,000 tells us anything, it's that God is not limited to certain regions. He can work anywhere. I I used to read the story of the feeding of the 4,000 to all of our teams when they would come back from mission trips that we would take to to France working with North Africans there. We would go over there, we would pray, we would see God answer prayers in our ministry among these North Africans, and then on the way home, we would transition back to normal life, right? With the idea that Jesus could work on the mission field, but he certainly couldn't work in the same way here in our lives, in our world, among our neighbors, But the feeding of the 4,000 is a reminder that he doesn't just work on the mission field, but he works here as well. It's a reminder that he doesn't just work in Sunday school or small group or in this room, but he can work on your block or in your workplace or at your practice with your team. See, we are encouraged through the feeding of the 4,000 to remember that Jesus can work anywhere. He can work there also. That's the first thing we see through the feeding of the 4,000. But there's one more thing that I want us to see inside of this passage, and that is really a, a somewhat of, a, of an epilogue, a postscript to this entire series. Because if this is a series that has been encouraging us to have faith in Christ, to, to stand when otherwise we would fall, What we see Jesus do in chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, is he points out some sinkholes to our faith. There's some influences in this world that will want to erode the foundation of our faith. And Jesus tells us to beware. Now, again, 
What we see in chapter 16 is Jesus changes his geography again. Right at the end of chapter 15, after this miracle in the Decapolis, he gets on a boat with the disciples near where that red star is, and he moves to the region of Magadan. Now, we don't know exactly where that is, but we think that it was somewhere near the town of Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes from Gentile territory back to Jewish territory. And when he gets back to Jewish territory, he's not met with a party or a reception or a parade. He's met with the religious leaders and the economic leaders of his country, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, waiting to greet him as he gets off the boat. Now, what's fascinating about the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together is that this is, these are unlikely bedfellows. You know, when we see Pharisees and Sadducees together, there's a part of us that goes, well, of course the Pharisees and the Sadducees were together. They're Bible people, and Bible people hang out with other Bible people. They go together to us, but they didn't go together in the first century. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the religious elite. They cared a lot about their theology and the teaching of their rabbis, and they believed in the supernatural and all these kinds of things. They had all these, these codes and systems. That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees were opportunists. They were people that did not believe that there was a life after death and did not believe in supernatural things. And so, they, though they lived inside of Israel, they had a worldview that was diametrically opposed from the Pharisees, who lived not as religious zealots, but as liberal people who would just take advantage of whatever the world had to offer. That was the Sadducees. It took a common enemy, Jesus, who they both rejected, to unite these two different groups and have them show up in chapter 16 and verse 1. And they show up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to do a sign. Now, if I'd have been Jesus, which I'm clearly not, okay? But if I'd have been Jesus, I might have answered this by saying, you want a sign? How about walking on water? How about feeding 4,000? How about feeding 5,000? How about healing the deaf, the blind, the mute? How about having people who are paralyzed walk again? How about, how about, how about, how about? But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he understood that this group of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had an inability to read spiritual signs. No matter what sign they were given, they wouldn't understand it. Now, this was not because they were dumb. Jesus says, hey, you guys can read the weather signs. You can look at the sky and decide if it's going to be a pretty day or a rainy day. You, you have the ability to discern that. that. That kind of a sign you can figure out. But Jesus said, there's another kind of sign that you can never figure out because you've rejected me. So all of the signs from the prophecy that had been fulfilled and from the miracles that had been worked fell on deaf ears and blind eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they had rejected Christ. And so Jesus says to them, he says, the only sign that you will be given in addition to what's already happened is the sign of Jonah. Now, what's the sign of Jonah? Well, chapter 12 in verse 40 of Matthew, Jesus explained what the sign of Jonah was. He said that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Jesus was saying was, he says, there, there is another sign that you will have that will be very prominent, and it will be my crucifixion, my burial, and my resurrection three days later. But even that sign you won't get because you're blind and deaf 
to the things of God because you have rejected me. Well, after that interaction, Jesus begins to talk to the disciples a little bit about that. And the disciples, amazingly, are preoccupied with what? Lunch. They're preoccupied with bread. They get to the other side and they realize we, we don't have enough food. Now, it's just kind of a humorous little story. I mean, I, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I think the scripture is, is so believable and that this is an accurate account. Matthew, who was one of the guys who was talking about bread here, wrote this down. It's not very flattering to himself because he's going to receive a rebuke from the Savior. They're worried about food, but Jesus was worried about something else. What Jesus is concerned about was that the teachings and the philosophies of the Pharisees and the Sadducees would impact and infect his church. Now, what were the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were different, right? These were not the same people. The Pharisees were the legalists of that day. They were people who had rejected Christ because they believed that their religious fervor would be enough to make them pleasing to God. They had no need for Jesus. They just needed their religious effort. That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were liberals. They did not believe they needed Jesus. They rejected him as well. But they rejected him on a totally different category. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that God was supernaturally involved in the affairs of their day. So son of God walking on the face of the earth made no sense at all to them. They rejected him on the basis of a liberal theological perspective. And Jesus talks to the disciples and he says, I'm concerned that these two trends might infest and infect my church, my followers, for ages to come. Can you think of any examples of how that might have impacted the church going forward? Jesus foresaw that, and he's concerned about it, and so he brings it up. But after Jesus brings up that concern, the disciples, they still are thinking about lunch. They thought that he was talking about the bread they had or didn't have in their lunch pail. And so Jesus lets them know in no uncertain terms, guys, Focus on the right thing here. Beware of the teaching and the influence of the Sadducees and of the Pharisees. And in this instance, Jesus is saying that they have this problem, not of legalism or of liberalism, but really it was a problem of littleism. They had little faith. They didn't reject Jesus, but they resisted him. They trusted him with some things, but not in all things. Now, friends, when I see this laid out for us in 16, 1 through 12, I think every single one of us has the potential to fall into one of these three traps, to reject Jesus either by our own effort or because we believe it doesn't matter, or to believe Jesus only in the areas where we feel like we're playing home games but reject him or fall short in areas where we feel like we're playing a road game in more hostile territory. But friends, the solution that Jesus lays out in all of these things is that we would be people who would provide, who would exhibit great faith in our great God. And as we do that, that he would do for us what we cannot do on our own. Forgive us of our sin. 
because of his death on the cross that died in our place and provide for us a life of purpose and hope being his minister of reconciliation in this broken world. Friends, will we be people who avoid those sinkholes but stand together with great faith in our great God? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and be encouraged by it. Thank you for the hope that we see there of life in Christ. And Father, we pray that we would remember that new life and that power now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.